0: So if you're not there already, find your way to Amos chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in Amos chapter 8 verse 1, and I'll read 1 through 3 to set the stage for where we're going today. Amos chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, Amos writes, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Let's pray. Lord, those verses are a sobering reminder of how a holy God views sin, even the sins of His people. And Lord, we come before You today knowing that we're a sinful people. We're fallen. You set the standard And we fell short. And yet, Lord, in your mercy, you gave us redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, today as we come before your word, I pray that you would open our eyes. And as the psalmist writes, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, help us to see you in your glory. Help us to see our sin for what it is so that we can repent. And then, Lord, lift our eyes in restoration and hope help us to walk in obedience. Help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And Lord, we need your help to do all of those things. None of them are accomplished on our own strength or because of our own good. Lord, we are wholly and completely dependent on you. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This weekend is a holiday weekend, it's Memorial Day, and it's a set-aside special time to remember lives, particularly to remember the lives of those who have fallen in defense of this country around the world. And we know that there are certain times to do certain things, there are appropriate times and seasons to celebrate certain things. Later on this week, there will be a wedding, and it will be an entirely different feel. That would be a time of celebration. And even as we read in God's Word, we know that Ecclesiastes 3 tells us there's a time for everything. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to rejoice. There's a time to tear down. There's a time to build up. There's a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to plant, a time to uproot, and you go on and on. And God has ordained a time for everything. And we also know that God, in His absolutely perfect wisdom, it is absolutely sovereign power, not only knows the times, but he sets the times. We know that in the fullness of time, at exactly the right time, Christ was born. We know that exactly the right time, Christ will return, not a moment too early, not a moment too late. God does everything in the perfection of his timing. Now as we open up Amos chapter 8 today, the first picture that we're going to get is one of Timing. The time is right, and the time is ready, but the picture is one of judgment. Israel, uh, warned for generations about her sin, is now pictured as ripe for judgment. And as we come into this, first of all, let's look at what that picture is in verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit, now the summer fruit is the late season fruit. This isn't the early first gleanings. This isn't the green, almost ripe stuff. This is the full season fruit. This is the stuff that you pull it off the tree and it's ready to go right then. This is the stuff that you don't actually ever get in the grocery stores uh, because you have to take it back and put it in the paper bag for a week and then you've missed the ripeness and it's mush. No, this is the perfectly good stuff. And God shows Amos a basket of fruit that is absolutely perfect and ready to go. And we would think that that would be a positive image. That is a positive. A picture in my mind, uh, but that's not what's happening here. What does this picture mean? Amos says, it's a basket of summer fruit, and the Lord says to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Now, there's a word play there that we miss in English. In Hebrew, that word that's translated summer fruit, that end of the season fruit, sounds almost identical to the word the end there in the middle of, ch- in the middle of verse 2. So Amos basically says, This end of season fruit symbolizes the end of my people. Not the image we would have thought, but even through the picture, even through the grammar that he uses, Amos is showing, or God is showing his people, more particularly through Amos, that the people are ready for judgment. The fullness of time has come. In his patience, in his mercy, God has overlooked the way that his people have walked for generations, uh, but no longer. He cannot allow their rebellion to go undealt with any longer. And so he says, the songs of the temple will become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. The songs of the temple, the place that should have been uh, full of joy and celebration and worship, is now going to become wailings. And the end of that verse, where we started reading this morning, is graphic. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Just in case you thought this was going to be a minor thing, Israel, there's a severity to what is coming. It's death and it's destruction, and it's to such a degree that the call is for silence. It's the scene that is so appalling, there are no words for it. You stand silent. The nations will stand silent, faced with the terror and the power of the God of Israel as he exercises judgment. But why does it come to that? But what's the problem? We, we know from Amos, we know from the other minor prophets that Israel is wicked. We've seen God condemn Israel for a number of things. They're rebellious. Uh, they have this external worship that doesn't touch their heart. We know that they abuse the poor for their own gain. But here in chapter 8, he kind of gives this summary statement of what makes them ready for judgment. What has brought them to this point of being ripe for judgment. Verse 4, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. See, built into the national DNA of Israel, if they had followed the law, was not only worship and holiness toward God, but it was love toward their neighbor. Israel was called, as Christ said in Matthew, the tenets of the law, the pillars of the law hung on this, you are to love God and you are to love your neighbor. Israel did not love their neighbor. Israel used their neighbor, and Israel abused the poor to such a degree that it says that they didn't just ignore the poor, but that they would bring the poor of the land to an end. They would crush them, they would trample on them. And look what their attitude is like. Look at verse five. The people are saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? Celebrating the new moon was one of the one of the parts of celebration under the law. It was a commanded part of the observance of Israel's worship. And it shows the people are doing that. They're they're coming to do churchy type things at the right time. But where's their heart at? They're saying in their heart, when will the new moon be over so that we might sell grain? They're waiting for this to be over. When is this religious activity going to be done so that we can go back to doing what we really want to do? See, their bodies were there in the place of worship. And we know it was sinful, fallen worship. They were doing it in the wrong way at the wrong place. But even that, they couldn't even manage to do the sinful worship with the right heart they're coming to the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong way with a completely wrong attitude wondering when they can get through this so they can go back to doing what they actually want to do so they can go back to serving their actual god which is their own lust their own desire for more for gain for wealth for ease when can we be done with this religious nonsense so that we can go back and sell grain and look at the rest of verse five and when will the sabbath be over so that we might offer wheat for sale that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. Not only can they not wait to be done with this worship stuff so that they go back to making money, they can't wait to be done with the worship stuff so that they can go back to making money in a deceitful way. When can we make the measure small and the money big? When can we lower the quantity and raise the price? When can we go back to enriching ourselves at the expense of other people? and it gets worse. When can we buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat? Now, not only do they want to deal falsely with people, they actually see people as possessions. When you couldn't pay your debts, you could very well be sold into slavery. And the idea is that they take the lives, not only of people, but the lives of their own countrymen, their brothers and sisters They take them so lightly that they would sell the poor for something as temporary as silver, that they would sell the needy for something as cheap as a pair of sandals. They count human life as worth nothing. They count people as worth nothing. They'll sell the chaff for wheat. The chaff was that useless part of the husk that would fall in the winnowing process. And so not only would they sell the grain, the thing that you could actually use, they'd sweep up the floor of the threshing room and they'd sell you that too. They'd sell you the good stuff and the garbage in one package and charge you the same price. The picture here is of a people that are utterly corrupt in every conceivable way. There is nothing redeeming about their actions. There is nothing redeeming about their heart motives at all. They're willing to sell for inflated prices. They're willing to sell what should never be sold. They're willing to sell their own brothers and sisters. And so the people are pictured as ripe and ready for judgment, like a summer fruit, like the fullness of the season that's come, the time is right for their judgment. But what does God do? How is God going to undo these people? How is he going to purge them and cleanse that land? Well, he's going to do it by removing what they hold on to. In his justice, God is going to remove very specific things from them. And the first thing that he's going to remove is their failed worship. Amos has already condemned the offerings. He's already condemned the high places. He's already gone through the fact that God hates their worship. He hates their songs, their feasts, their festivals. It's an annoyance. It's an abomination. It's an affront to him. But here in chapter 8, he demonstrates just how far he's going to go to purge them of that. Verse 8, shall not the land tremble on this account? Let's start in verse 7. The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. That's a terrifying statement that God would not forget what they have done. And he says, Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells within it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile in Egypt. The floodwaters of the Nile were relatively predictable and they were critical for the agriculture, but it's this picture of a rising and falling and God's talking about the whole land doing that. It's a pretty picturesque way of talking about an earthquake. God Himself is going to shake the earth. When the fullness of judgment comes, when the day of the Lord and His wrath comes, uh, there are going to be signs in the earth. And again, that's not new here. We've seen that in the other minor prophets. We would see that as we read through the major prophets, that in God's outworking of His wrath, there are signs on earth. And of course, it doesn't end there. Verse 9, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. See, not only will there be signs on earth, but there will be signs in heaven. What's the point? When this day comes, it is going to be absolutely unmistakable that God himself is acting. This is not just another difficult time. This is not just another uh, supposedly random season of trouble. The day of the Lord makes it absolutely clear who God is and what he is like. He is the one with the power to shake the very foundations of the earth. He is the one who has control over the heavenly bodies themselves. This is an absolutely unique time. And look at verse 10. I'll turn your feasts into mourning, all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Some of you say you're already there. I'll make it like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. God says, I'm going to take your feasts. I'm going to take your religious observances. I'm going to take those things that should be joyful and happy, and I'm going to turn them into mourning. You're dressed for a party. I'm going to dress you for a funeral. What's going to happen is God is going to bring them to a place of mourning, essentially over the death of the nation. You understand that's what's happening here. God is preparing the funeral for the death of a nation. Verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God says there's a famine coming on the land you say he's already said that. Walter, a few weeks ago, took us through the time when there would be so little bread that people would have clean teeth, cleanness of teeth, and not because they had good dentists, but because there was no food. Now, no food is bad. No food is a death sentence for a people. Understand this. A famine of bread is bad. A famine of hearing from the Lord is worse. The worst thing that could happen to these people was not a shortage of bread. The worst thing that could happen to these people was the Lord withdrawing himself from them. In Exodus 19, as God enters into that covenant with his people, one of the most spectacular elements of that Mosaic covenant of the law was that a holy God would live among a sinful people. That for the first time since the garden, the presence of God would dwell among people. It was unimaginably gracious. The feasts, the festivals, the sacrifices were how they would live in fellowship with a holy God. And so one of the most terrifying, devastating judgments is God withdrawing his presence from them. You read through the book of Ezekiel and you see uh, the visual idea of God's presence removing itself from the temple and the tragedy that no one seems to notice. And here God says, not only is his presence removed from the people, but God is going to remove his word from them. We don't typically share that perspective that a lack of God is the worst thing that could happen. You ask somebody, what's the worst thing that could happen? I lose my job, I lose my savings. I lose my health, I lose my friends, I lose my spouse, I lose my safety. But we're quick to point to those things. None of those things are the worst. All of those things are wrapped up in being temporary, difficult, absolutely painful, very real. But God withdrawing himself from the people is a terrifying judgment. These people had grown used to hearing the word of God. They had grown used to hearing the prophets condemning them for their sin. And instead of growing tender toward those warnings, they had hardened their hearts and rejected them. In that last half of chapter 7, what happened in that interaction between Amaziah and Amos? What did that priest say? Stop. Stop prophesying. Prophesy no longer. Say nothing else. And the people say the same thing to Isaiah and the same thing to Jeremiah. They try to shut off the voice of God. And so there comes a point where God says, fine, You won't hear my words. You don't want to hear my words. You will hear nothing from me. And that should have terrified them as a nation. You think back on Israel's history, and when Malachi puts pen to paper after him 400 years, nothing. For a people that had grown used to hearing from God for four centuries, silence. Until John the Baptist says, that one has come that will be better than any prophet that has come. But the people have been warned and they refuse to hear. And so those who swear by the gods of all these nations, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, verse 14, and say, as your God lives, O Dan, or as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall never to rise again. When we turn to page to Amos chapter 9, We see the extent of God's judgment. Not only is he going to remove their fallen worship, God is going to remove a sinful people themselves. When we started the Minor Prophets, we actually kind of opened up the study of the Minor Prophets in Leviticus. Leviticus 26 in particular. Because in Leviticus 26, before the people ever entered the land, God told them what their obligations were. As they would go into the land, God said, if you obey me, here's a list of blessings that will be yours. As you are faithful, you will find me more than faithful. You will find abundance and provision and plenty and safety and security. But he said in Leviticus 26, if you disobey me, these are the curses that will come on you. It was a reminder that God isn't just randomly acting out here, that even the judgment of God is a testimony to the faithfulness of God, that he faithfully blessed them when they were obedient and that he is faithful to discipline them when they're disobedient. In Leviticus 26, verse 32, God says he will devastate the land so that their enemies who settle in it will be appalled at what has happened. In that same chapter, he says he'll scatter the people among the nations and lay waste to their cities. He says they will perish in the lands of their enemies, that they will rot away in foreign lands. And as you come to Amos 9, uh, what you see is God really giving the full picture of that judgment. Look at Amos 9 verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. That is a significant thing. What should the altar have been? What is the altar? The altar is a place of God's justice and mercy. The altar was the place where sin was dealt with because the wages of sin is what? Death, and it always has been. That's not a New Testament concept. That doesn't just come up in Romans. The wages of sin has always been death. From the very beginning, sin kills. From the garden, sin brings death, and sin demands that something die to pay for that sin. The altar was the place where something died for the sins of another. The place of justice and mercy, because that altar was the place where that animal would cover over your sin. But here the Lord stands by the altar, and there is no offering. Here is simply the Lord speaking in His justice, and He says, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. Shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape." That is a sobering picture of God's ability to deal complete and total justice to his people. We've got these four themes up behind me and we have since the beginning of the year and we will through the rest of the year. The idea that God is sovereign, that God is holy, that God is just, and that God is merciful. Those four main themes that every one of the minor prophets hangs on. But here's the thing. Sometimes I think we forget how connected they are. Why does justice have to come. Justice has to come because God is holy and his people are not. Because sin demands a consequence. But how is it that God is able to judge? Other people's sin might make me angry, but what ability do I have to actually execute any kind of justice? Well, it's limited at best. When we talk about God, not only is he holy and not only is he just, but he is absolutely sovereign. What we see in chapter 9 is the picture of not only a holy God, but an absolutely sovereign and powerful God who is able to execute this perfect justice. Look at what he says in verse 2. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves at the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, I will command the sword and it will kill them. I will fix my eyes on them for evil and not for good. Now, aside from being a pretty sobering little section, did that sound familiar to you at all? Yeah, as you read that, I want you to think of what David wrote in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. All the omnipresence of God, the idea that God is everywhere at all parts in all places in His creation is a comfort to those who are in right relationship with Him. Understand this, the omnipresence of God is a terror to those who live in rebellion. Those same attributes of God that comfort His people, that console the weary and the wounded and the faithful terrify the wicked it demonstrates the kind of god who can execute this kind of justice and he goes on look at verse 5 the lord god of hosts he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and it rises like the nile and sinks again like the nile of egypt who builds his upper chambers in the heaven and founds his vaults upon the earth who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth yahweh the lord is his name What kind of God could judge a nation? The kind of God whose throne room is in heaven and who sets the foundations of the earth. The kind of God who sets the number and the extent of the waters in every part of the earth. God alone, Yahweh alone, the Creator, God Almighty, can do these things. And if you choose to set your face against that kind of God, how could you hope to stand? The people have forgotten who God is. They have forgotten what God is like. They assume that He either cannot see their rebellion, that He does not care about their rebellion, or that He is unable to do anything about their rebellion. They are absolutely deceived. And because they've forgotten God, He's going to judge them like a people that are strangers to Him. Verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Israel was called to be different. They were called to be distinct. They were called to be a shining, brilliant light among the nations. God placed Israel at a physical crossroads of the nations. From where they were, they should have been able to demonstrate a, a kind of purity, blessing, abundance that was so foreign and so spectacular that the eyes of the people were drawn to them. Not because of how great Israel was, but because of how great Israel's God was. If they lived in obedience, the world would have seen a tiny people, an insignificant people, blessed beyond imagination. But they failed. Israel decided that they would be like the nations around them, and so God says, I will treat you like all of the nations. Are you not like the Cushites to me? Aren't you just like those pagan peoples? Remember, I called you out of Egypt, and by the way, I called Egypt, and I called Assyria. I am the one who forms nations. I set their boundaries. I oversee kings and kingdoms. And Israel, you have chosen to be like just another people. And so the Lord will treat them like just another people. Those who say disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. Apparently there were still some in Israel who were saying nothing bad can happen to us. We are God's people after all. What could possibly happen to us? We can do what we want, worship how we want, go where we want, buy how we want, sell how we want under some kind of supposed immunity simply because of their DNA. And they forgot that God has called his people to himself, that God did indeed choose them as his own treasured possession, but God demanded that they be holy as he is holy. And we've said it before and I will very likely say it again as we move through the Minor Prophets, uh, the book of Amos should end at Amos 9, verse 10. If you look at your Bibles, there should be a period at the end of verse 10, and then logically, nothing else should follow that. Right? I mean, can you think of any reason why it's not just a white space and then the opening verses of Obadiah in the following pages? Has Israel given any indication that they're going to change? Have they shown any remorse for their sin? Have they shown any sign of being willing or able to turn? Uh, Nothing. Well, it's hard to hear judgment week after week. Believe me, I get that. It's hard to preach judgment week after week. But at the very least, doesn't it make sense? At the very least, what you've heard week after week, book after book, isn't it at the very least logical? Look at what Israel has become. Of course, this is what has to happen next. When you begin to get a glimpse of the holiness of God, when you begin to scratch the surface of the terror and the treason that sin is, the only thing that doesn't make sense is why God has waited this long. Why God in His holiness would wait this long before dealing with His people why would God give them so many warnings? Why would He continue to send prophets? Why would He delay year after year after year before dealing with them? Uh, already, this is an overabundance of mercy that Israel still exists. Judgment, justice makes sense. But somehow, in His mercy, judgment and justice are not the last words of God. God is going to show mercy. And God is going to restore His people. You see that glimmer of hope there in verse 8. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. God says he's going to preserve a piece, a remnant, a part of his people. That remnant language is used throughout the prophets to talk about uh, the remnants of the people that pass through God's judgment that he in his mercy sustains. But the question is, what does that look like? When God spares a portion of his people, what does that mean? Does it mean that he kind of just sustains a few to bear his name and that they kind of stumble on through history? That would be enough, wouldn't it? For God to simply ensure that Israel isn't completely wiped out would already be a testimony to his mercy. For God to allow a hundred or fifty or ten to survive and carry on the name Israel it would be a testimony to his faithfulness. But look at what he's promised. He's promised to restore his people and the first thing that he promises to restore is the ruler, a right ruler over the people. Verse 11. In that day, and we have to stop there for a second. Because what's changed between the end of verse 10 and the start of verse 11? And the answer at least in my Bible is nothing. There is no insert there that Israel has undergone some massive change. Amos is highlighting the fact that God in his sovereignty is going to judge and God in his sovereignty is going to restore. Now we do know that there is heart change among the people. Amos tells us that. Other prophets tell us that. We know that there is no physical restoration without spiritual restoration. We know that God works in a mighty way and transforms the hearts of his people. We will major on that when we get to the book of Zechariah that goes into that in detail. Hosea kind of opened that up to us. We know that there is heart change that God brings about. But the way that Amos writes it, it is almost striking how soon it comes. In that same day of complete judgment, watch God preserve His people for the sake of His name. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. God is going to raise up the booth of David, the house of David. What's he talking about? God is going to reinstate a Davidic ruler among his people. A son of David will once again sit on the throne. And that's remarkable for a couple of reasons. First of all, remember Amos is writing primarily to the northern kingdom. And they have shaken off the Davidic kings a hundred and some odd years before this. They have already decided they don't want anything to do with the Davidic kings. God says he is going to restore them and place a Davidic ruler over them. It's another reminder that God is going to reunite his people. Again, not a new thing here. Hosea talks about it. Ezekiel talks about it in detail. There's a coming reunification of God's people when they will join themselves as one people under one ruler. It's also remarkable because as of the time that Amos writes this, there is still a Davidic king on the throne in the south. David's line is not yet broken. This looks forward not only to restoration, but it looks forward to the judgment that is coming even on Judah in the southern kingdom it was wobbly, it will crumble and it will fall. As Babylon comes in and wipes out the southern kingdom, the Davidic line is broken. A succession of wicked kings, unfit to carry on that line, anticipates someone greater. Because God promised David that his line would rule forever. In 2 Samuel 7, as God enters into that Davidic covenant, he says that you will not lack a man to sit on the throne. He points forward to a time when one of David's children will rule as no other king in history had. In righteousness and justice, with unlimited power. And we know that that king is Jesus Christ which is why it is so critical as Matthew opens up his gospel that he introduces us to Jesus as a son of David and a son of Abraham. Those are not failed. They are not vain. They are not empty words. They reach back into the history of God's people, and they pull God's faithfulness through the testaments to connect that story of God's faithfulness to every one of his covenant promises. And this king... Verse 12, they're going to possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. This king is not only going to rule over Israel, but this king is going to have a people from all the nations who are called by his name. And if you turn to Acts chapter 15, and I hope you do at some point this week, and you go through it, that becomes a critical turning point in the history of the church. Because in Acts chapter 15, there's a great debate among the newly born church. And that is, what does it look like for Gentiles to become a part of this body of Christ? Remember, the church on the day of Pentecost is born 3,000 are saved, and it's a Jewish church. But as the gospel goes out, as Christ said that it would, you have Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. And now the question is, how Jewish do you have to be to become a Christian and worship the Jewish Messiah? And there are some who are saying, uh, you've got to go all the way. You've got to fulfill every obligation of the Mosaic Covenant. You have to even become circumcised To be a part of this church there were some who said no the spirit fell on them just like it did on us and so they're already part of the church and james at that jerusalem council speaks up and in acts 15 15 he says and with this the words of the prophets agree just as it is written and then he quotes these verses the idea of a king possessing a remnant from all the nations for himself see god is faithful to his every promise God is faithful to what he promised Abraham, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. As Christ calls to himself a people from every nation, he is faithful to what he promised David, that one day a son of David will sit on his throne and rule the nations. An unending possession. That's not the end of it. Not only is God going to restore the ruler, but God is going to restore the fortunes of his people Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowmen shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountains will drip sweet wine, and the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities that inhabit them and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. It's this picture not only of restoration, but of overflowing abundance, unimaginable Abundance and provision for the people. Uh, Days are coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Uh, The idea that planting and sowing season won't have this long break in between them, there will be this unending cycle of planting and harvesting. No more waiting for the early rains and the late rains. No more wondering whether that first crop was all you were going to get. No more wondering whether the locusts were going to come in and decimate your crop. Uh, No, the idea is that now as soon as you plant, almost it's ready to be harvested, this continual provision. And so much that it's as if the wine was dripping and running from the hills like rivers. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they'll rebuild the ruined cities, and they'll inhabit them. Those cities that God said he was going to decimate are going to be rebuilt. And remember, God said, if there's a city with a 1,000, it's going to come back as 100. If there's a city with 100, it's going to come back as 10. Not only ruining the physical cities, but decimating the population. And now God said he's going to rebuild them. They're going to plant vineyards and drink their wine. Earlier in Amos, God says these rich people, uh, these people who are oppressing the poor, they're going to dig vineyards, they're going to build houses, but they're not going to live in them and they're not going to drink their produce. And now God says they will. They'll have their houses. They'll have their vineyards. They will have what they have lost. What judgment took away, God is going to restore. And not only is he going to restore their ruler, and not only is he going to restore uh, their blessing here, God is going to restore their land. Look at verse 15. He says, I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted out of the land that I had given them, says the Lord. Now, there's a very significant connection of the people with the land. God has made it specific and clear what land he's talking to. I will plant them on their land, and they will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them. What land did he give them? From way back in Genesis, he's been talking about the same land. The land that he gave to Abraham in that Abrahamic covenant. The land whose borders he set before the people ever set foot in them. A land that goes far beyond the borders at the time when Amos was writing. And sometimes we can be quick to separate the physical promises from what we call the spiritual promises. What you need to see is that they're all in the same context. And by the way, if you've been paying attention, you saw that the land was also there in Hosea and in Joel and now in Amos. And guess what? Spoiler alert. It's going to show up in Obadiah too. God is uniquely concerned with this particular land. Why? Because he made a covenant promise to Abraham that he would give it to him. Not as a temporary possession, but as an everlasting possession. All of this, all of this, while it is good for Israel, all of this, while it is a tremendous blessing for God's people, you have to understand that all of this, all that it does is point back to God's faithfulness to be absolutely true to every promise that he's ever made. When God wrote to his people in Leviticus, he told them exactly what would come if they were rebellious. He told them exactly what to expect if they failed him. Turn in your Bibles with me to Leviticus 26. If you don't have it in your Bibles, it is also going to be on the screen up there. In Leviticus 26, I want to start reading in verse 40. This is what God promises. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. When God restores his people, he does not restore them to the Mosaic covenant of the law. They already failed that. They had no ability to keep that. When God restores his covenant promises to his people, he looks all the way back to the beginning. Promises that he made to Abraham. Seed. That kings would come from him. That Davidic covenant doesn't even come out of nowhere. It's rooted in promises made to Abraham. Seed, blessing that would bless not only the people, but the world. And we know that that fulfills through Jesus Christ, through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And a very particular land. A land that is given to them as an eternal inheritance. And you trace back through Israel's history, and nothing like this happens after the exile. Even when the people come back from captivity, it doesn't look like this. And it doesn't happen through the centuries. And it didn't happen in 1948. And the people still don't turn their hearts toward God. There's a time when God will call and return the hearts of his people. Because he's faithful, not because they are. For his name's sake and not for theirs. When we come to the conclusion of Amos, we're given this great picture of the lion and the lamb what we call this whole series, Yahweh roars. That picture that Amos gives of Yahweh as a roaring lion. Power, majesty, fierce rage against sin. Who could stand against the lion in all its power? Who could stand against Yahweh when he roars? the kind of God who holds the stars and the seas in His hand. Who could stand? Who could meet His standard of perfection? Who could touch His holiness? Who would be fit to come into His presence? And the answer certainly isn't Israel. Boy, did they prove that. But the reality is that neither do we. Do we? Can we honestly sit here and say we're any better than Israel? that our hearts are any less divided, that our motives are any less wicked, that we're any less temporary, that we're any less fallen. No. Like Israel, we fail to meet the standard. And like Israel, what makes sense would be for us to face the terror of Yahweh as he roars. But God is merciful. The lion who roars in Amos is also the lamb who dies. To take away the sins of his people. That's the beautiful image that John gives us in Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, John is given a vision of the throne room in heaven. And the Ancient of Days sits on his throne and he holds the scroll, the title deed to all the earth. And the question goes out who is fit to open the scroll? We sang a song about this a couple of weeks ago. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seals and open the scroll? And there was none found. Not in heaven or on earth and under the earth. No one is fit. And John weeps. And then in Revelation 5.5, 5, one of the elders said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The conquering lion and the lamb that was slain. One and the same in Jesus Christ. That's the image that has to be burned into our hearts and minds as we close the book of Amos. The image of a holy God worthy of our praise, worthy of our adoration, worthy of our worship, worthy of our perfect obedience and the image of a lamb, unblemished, perfect, spotless, but slain for the sins of his people. The image of a God, holy, majestic, and righteous in judgment, but the God who is mighty to save. Three things for us to consider as we go today. First of all, where's your heart You came today potentially to do religious things, to read, to pray, to sing, to study. Israel could do religious things. Where's your heart? Is there something that you're saying, I can't wait for Matt to stop so that I can get on? Now, you might be waiting for Matt to stop for very valid reasons. (laughs) But what is it that you really long to get to that captures your heart, your mind, your attitudes, and your affections more than worshiping God and fellowshipping with his people? Where's your heart? Second, what does loving our neighbors look like? Again, the poor have been politicized in our day. And it removes our focus from where we actually need to be. We are called to be a people who love God and who love others. And yes, there is wisdom and discernment. Yes, there is work. But how we view those in need reflects something of our heart. Because who was more desperately in need than you and I when it came to salvation? How is it that we practically love our neighbors? And third, do we really recognize the grace of the God who speaks? Israel was going to undergo a famine in the land, a desperate search not for bread but for the Word of God. What a privilege it is to hear His Word. Not me. That's not what I'm saying, but what a privilege it is to have the Word of God. Do you understand that the God of all creation could have remained silent? His creation screams out His name. Romans 1 tells us that creation itself tells us of His eternal power and His divine nature. The problem is that we take that natural revelation and we twist it and we worship the creation rather than the Creator itself. How kind of God to give us His Word that reveals Him to us, that tells us what He is like, that tells us about His covenant promises to His people, that demonstrates His unending faithfulness, that tells us of His plan and His purpose for you and I, that God is not silent on the purpose and His will for our life. How kind of God that He has told us what He expects. How kind of God that He has told us what forgiveness looks like when we fail. How unimaginably kind of God to tell us how this whole thing ends how desperately dissatisfying would it be to live in this world if we didn't know what was coming how heartbreaking and frustrating to think that the way of this world was just going to progress in concentric circles of evil with no end to it what a comfort to know that christ the one who was slain and rose again is coming back for his people to redeem us to make us like him to rule the nations How kind is it that God has spoken today to us in His Word? How often I take that for granted. Let's praise God. Let's pray. Lord, You are good. You're good in that You have told us what You're like. Lord, You're good in Your unending mercy. Lord, Your mercies are new every morning, and we see and we experience that every morning. You give us life and breath, and You didn't have to. Lord, you've left us with meaningful work to do to proclaim the gospel among the nations until you return. Lord, you've given us a living hope. God, you've given us everything we need to pertain to life and godliness. You satisfy us. You sustain us. You rescue us and you redeem us. You forgive us. Lord, through your spirit, we're made able to obey you. So many unimaginable privileges, Lord, and we don't deserve the first of them. God, we are so small. How could we stand in your presence? Only because you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, what a remarkable promise. So Lord, convict us of our sin. Remind us of your holiness. Spur us toward obedience. And we pray, Lord, come quickly. God, we long to see the king in his kingdom. Amen.